According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs 19 this morning. Proverbs 19, looking at verses 1 through 4. We're actually in the middle of 1 through 3 that we're handling as a poetic unit. And then when we wrap that up, we will uh, move on to verse 4, a verse about money wealth and friends and the, the kind of friends you have when you have money and the kind of friends that leave you when, when you lose your money and, and uh, those kind of things. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon our time in His Word. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank You for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank You for the Word of God. We thank you that it is unchanging, it is true, it is absolute. It gives us stability. And here we are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that that's just so lost, Father, without you. I pray that we would grow in your word and that we would be better ambassadors to uh, communicate your truth to this lost and dying world. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, as we saw... Last week, chapter 19 begins with three verses warning to maintain personal integrity no matter the cost. Verses 1, 2, and 3 form a poetic unit. And uh, we have these three verses warning to maintain personal integrity. And the structure on this is different. than I don't think I've seen anything like this in 19 chapters of, of Proverbs. It's pretty standard in any verse to have an A and a B, the two halves, the dystich of the, of the Hebrew poetry. And if they're uh, opposites, you, then they're separated with an or. If they're parallel, then they're separated with an and and or an even, things like that. And so we have the better than statement in verse 1. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. And so this is pretty standard. We have this in, uh, in a lot of places, the better than Proverbs, because you have something that's described as being good and then something that's more good, something that's better than. And so uh, we have that. But then when we move to verse 2, we realize that it's a continuation of verse 1. And it starts with an also. And we have the A and the B part in verse 2 and we realize, well, wait a minute, we have the integrity and lack of integrity in verse 1, and now we have the continuation of that in verse 2 and in verse 3. Because in verse 2 we have also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge. And that's a continuation of the life without integrity from verse 1. And the B part as well. He who, who hurries his footsteps errs. And again, it's a continuation of the life without integrity. Moving into verse 3, the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. And so as I've outlined these three verses, what we really have is we have 1a talking about the integrity and then part b, verse 2a and b, verse 3a and b. Really what we have is a and b in verse 1 and then c, d, e, and f in verses 2 and 3. And we can think if, if, if we just take these three verses and renumber them as a single verse, then we can break them down A, B, C, D, E, F into six parts. And the A part is the only part that's talking about the, the life of integrity, walking in integrity. 
And then the B part, C, D, E, and F part, the, the rest of what we call verses 2 and 3, um, they all continue this, this life without integrity. Anyway, so that's the, uh, the illustration on that. While poverty may be the consequence of negligence, it may also be the consequence of maintaining integrity. And uh, it may be that a believer has to stay faithful to the Word of God and it costs him something in physical terms. That uh, by serving the Lord and, and you pay a price. And, and that can be the case, especially in, in nations where there's persecution and there's other consequences for naming the name of Christ. Then, uh, then you may find, uh, a believer may find themselves in a place of personal destitution uh, as a consequence of that. And that's what we see here. The poor man, but he's walking in integrity. So he's happy to, to pay that price. So it may be the consequence of maintaining integrity. And David's the example of that at 1 Samuel 18, 23. He was a poor man because he'd spent his youth, instead of advancing himself and advancing his finances, he'd spent his youth covering for his older brothers and, and shepherding his father's flocks and, and dealing with the family issues there. We had a lot of study related to tome, the, the word for integrity. It's not tom, it's tome, and uh, the integrity principles throughout the Old Testament. The unstable life of no integrity has five descriptions. And this is where we have 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B, as we outline the rest of this poem into these final five parts. The uh, perverted speech. He who is perverse in speech and is a fool. That's the 1A. And when you have perverted speech and perverted ways, you are twisted, you are crooked, and you're, you're bringing your own sorrow upon you. This life has no joy. This life has no intrinsic value. Uh, they try to invent their own value for it and it's, it's just sad. So it's the, tr- the twisted, crooked, and perverted way. The Hebrew is ikish, the verb akash. I put a couple of the akash verbs in there. Um, but mostly we're looking at the, uh, the adjective ikish. Something that's crooked, something that's not straight. And uh, something that lines up with God's standard is straight because God's standard is righteousness. It's a rule. It's a, it's a straight edge. And you can use it to measure other things by. And when you have a straight edge, you know if, if something is straight or if something is crooked. So God's standard of righteousness is our straight edge for life. And we line up with it for blessing or we go crooked and, uh, and we pay the penalty. And so that's the principle there. Um... Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge. This is the 2A portion of, uh, of this. So subpoint 2, the second description, no knowledge of soul. No knowledge of soul. It's not good for a person or a soul. In the Hebrew, it is not good for a nefesh to be without knowledge. And uh, so the, the Hebrew word nefesh is sometimes translated soul, sometimes translated person. Um, essentially it's the same thing because the real you is your soul, it's not your body, uh, that we are souls, we have bodies, that's the best way to say that. Uh, don't say that you are a body and you have a soul, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. And uh, so technically, if, uh, if you want to have fun with people that don't know this kind of truth, if they talk about having a soul, just stop them and say, well no, technically, actually now, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. And that'll get them thinking and maybe you'll have a discussion about biblical things. But it's not good for a nefesh to be without knowledge. 
And uh, it's one of the, the glories of humanity. We are in the image and likeness of God. He desires to relate to us on a mature basis. We want to fear the Lord with the knowledge. Remember, Israel had a zeal for the Lord, but it was not in accordance with knowledge. And so uh, given the fact that we are expected to be rational, that faith is a rational expression, we, uh, we can see how these things come together. We did much more on this back in Proverbs 18.15 when we realized that a, uh, a knowledge deficiency will hinder wisdom and hinder everything else. That before you can have wisdom you've got to have knowledge. So Proverbs 18.15 says, The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And that's, uh, that's what we do. We realize that however long you've been saved and however much doctrine you've accumulated, uh, you need to get more. We all need to get more. That no one needs to s- sit back and retire and say, okay, I know enough. No such thing. And uh, so we acquire more, we acquire more, not for the fact of knowing more and lording it over other people. Remember, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So when we're gaining our knowledge, we want to be gaining the wisdom and the understanding that that knowledge allows for. Knowledge is not an end unto itself. And so uh, these other passages including Hosea 4.6, John 16.3, Romans 10.2, and Philippians 1.9. We looked at those uh, last week before we ran out of time. All right. I think we looked at those last week. (laughs) Did we not? We did. All right, you wrote them down and you remember them. Do you remember what they say? I don't remember what they say, but okay. (laughs) I've slept since then. All right. The third description is the hurried footsteps. This is an unstable life of no integrity. And then what we notice when we, when we kind of put a uh, kind of a description upon all five of these, and once we get all five listed, you'll, you'll see what I mean. But when we get these five descriptions written down and we look at them, the, the, the summary uh, of these five to me is unstable. That's why I call it the unstable life. When you see someone that's twisted, when you see someone that's lacking, that's deficient in knowledge, when you see someone that's always in a, in a rush and the chaos of the hurried footsteps, uh, all of these are descriptions of, of, of unstable people and their unstable life. And, uh, and we don't need that. We should be separated from that. We should uh, have the stability that comes from our, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The Christian way of life is not unstable. That's not why he saved us and that's not why he gave us his word. All right, so now this third description, the hurried footsteps. The Hebrew word is uts. Uts. Uh, it's U-W-T-S to transliterate it into English letters or Latin letters. <coughs> but it starts with the Hebrew letter Aleph. So that's your apostrophe, but it's your apostrophe that curves to the right like a closed quote mark. It's your uh, apostrophe that curves to the right so that makes it different from the Ickish apostrophe. The Ickish apostrophe curves to the left. I don't know if you can see that or if the print's too small on the screen, but the Ickish apostrophe curves to the left because that's the Hebrew letter ayin. The, uh, the Aleph apostrophe for the Hebrew word utz curves to the right because that's the apostrophe mark that, that uh, represents the Hebrew letter Aleph. The Hebrew letter Aleph is not pronounced. It's a silent letter, but it is a closure of the throat it's like what, if you think about the, the word honest. When you say the word honest, the H in honest is a silent H. You don't say honest or honest. You say honest. But in order to say honest, 
you've got to close your throat for that moment to start the honest sound. And so the closer of the throat is how you start the word oots. You start the word oots with the same closure of the throat that you would say with the English word honest. All right? There you go. Extra credit Hebrew uh, alphabet this morning. But the idea of a hurried footstep, and to me it's hilarious that when you're saying the word for hurried, you have to slow down to close your throat to say oots. And uh, and I just find that to be an ironic uh, issue. But here it's described in 19.2, he who hurries his steps errs. And when you're in a rush, you're going to make mistakes. When you're in a rush, you're going to fall short. And perhaps you might accidentally do the right thing, but you're not doing it in the right way. And you're not doing it for the right reasons. And so it's possible to get to accomplish the right task, but because it's not done in the right way and the right reasons, you are erring. You are falling short. And I uh, appreciate that as well. Uh, The term comes back three more times in the book of Proverbs, starting in chapter 21 and verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty, that's our word oots, uh, so it's contrasted with diligent, everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. So we've got surely, surely in both parts of this verse. The plans of the diligent. And you'll notice diligent means you're slowing it down, you're cautious, you're, you're uh, uh, seeking the will of God, you are uh, ascertaining what it is you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. You're deliberate about these things. So I like the term deliberate along with the idea of diligent. And there's advantage in that. There's the certainty of advantage in that. It is surely The contrast, everyone who is hasty. Everyone. The hasty one, the oots, surely comes to poverty. That's the unstable life of haste. Over to uh, chapter 28. Clearly we understand the principle. We're not talking about emergency situations. We're not talking about, we were discussing our security procedures around here because of the Fort Worth church shooting and different things. And, and we're not talking about emergency crisis moments, okay? In an emergency crisis moment, you do act and you act immediately and you act. But see, here's the thing. That's not hasty either. It is a reaction, but you have already put the training into it ahead of time. You've already drilled. You've already prepared. You've already... And so that's not hasty. It's fast, but it's not hasty because of the training and preparation that goes into it. Does that make sense? All right. So uh, when, the, when the hero jumps up and, and nails the, the, the bad guy with one shot and saves the lives of 50 people in the church, uh, he wasn't being hasty. He was being diligent. And that diligence comes with thousands of hours of practice at the range and thousands of, uh, of bullets sent down range and, and all the rest. All right. Just thought I'd Throw that out there too so we don't confuse things on hasty. Uh, Proverbs 28 and verse 20. A faithful man, a faithful man will abound with blessings. So notice the poetry here. In chapter 21, hasty was contrasted with diligence. In this chapter, hasty is going to be contrasted with faithful. A faithful man uh, will abound with blessings. But he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. 
and probably the, the this is likely the uh, the biggest uh, sphere in which humanity, fallen humanity, loves to be hasty, is uh, is is getting rich. The the get rich quick schemes. There's there's no shortage of them. They're everywhere, and uh, and that's why uh, we sell so many lottery tickets. That's why there's so many entries in the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. That's frustrating. I'm never doing that again. Goodness, the uh, the haste to get rich quick, and uh, and the recognition or the what the what the satanic lure is is that you don't have to go slow. You don't have to put in the work. You don't have to make the long-term sacrifices that, that you know, God's system entails for true wealth building and true accumulation and, and all the rest. That you can have it now and you can have it fast. Like he tempted Jesus. I'll give you the kingdom now. You can have all these kingdoms and all their glory. Just fall down and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to do the hard work. You can have it now. And uh, well, we see how that turned out. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to worship you. I'm only going to worship my Father. And he went to the cross. So um, again, the faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. Another context there where haste is a bad thing. Chapter 29 of verse 20. I'm starting to suspect that there is no illustration of oots that's in a good way. <laughs> that oots is always bad. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who is oots in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. <laughs> you know, when you're talking without thinking, when you're, uh, you're too hasty to be speaking that you don't have time to uh, slow down and think it through and consider the, uh, the assignment that God has given you in this communication encounter. Hasty in His words. And uh, just like uh, the other illustrations of hastiness that we were talking about where Satan likes to get you all riled up, he got the, the Thessalonian believers all riled up that they'd missed the rapture and they were in the tribulation. And Paul had to slow them down and say, wait a minute, don't be so quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed as if the day of the Lord has come. It can't come. Think it through. You know it can't come because we taught you this when we were with you. The day of the Lord can't come until the church is raptured. The departure comes first. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction. Then you'll know the day of the Lord is upon you. Think it through. You've been taught this. You know that the church doesn't experience the tribulation. The reason why Second Thessalonians is in our Bible, to make that clear. Alright, so in all of these cases where haste is uh, spoken of here, when oots is featured, it's, it's a negative, that uh, when oots is featured, uh, you can think of the oots like an oops, and say, I should have stopped, I should have slowed down, I should have thought it through. I should have prayed about it, I should, I should have searched the Scriptures. I should have considered what it is that He would have for me to say, what it is he would have for me to work, what it is he would have for me to do in, uh, in all of these contexts. Alright, so the first description is the perverted of speech and ways, the second description is knowledge, deficient knowledge of the soul, the third description is the hurried footsteps, the fourth description is the ruined way, the ruined way. Get back to Proverbs 19. The foolishness of man ruins his way. 
And so we have, of course, we've been dealing with foolishness for all these chapters of, of Proverbs, but here we're introduced to the, uh, the, the verb kalaf. Kalaf. Actually, salaf. Salaf. C-A-L-A-P-H. Salaf. When I see that C printed there, I'm thinking of the Muslim caliphate. <laughs> and that's not good, but that would certainly be a ruined way, wouldn't it? Um, but salaf. 5557 is the strongest number on Salaf. And you talk about ruining. Let's uh, show you a sample of these going back to Exodus 23. What does it mean to ruin? Do we have, do we tend to have a human idea of what something is ruined? Do we tend to get emotional about something when it gets ruined? Just consider. Uh, how God responds to things that are ruined. Because God is perfect and He's designed a perfect plan and then He sees sin and evil and rebellion. He sees an unstable life come to ruin and that's not what He designed it for. That's not what He intended. So in Exodus 23.8 You shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and ruins, subverts, the cause of the just. There is no justice when bribery is normal. There, you don't have a justice system at that point. You know, and, and you wonder sometimes in our culture, do we, how fair is our justice? How blind is Lady Justice? Has it been so thoroughly perverted that it's, it's just a mockery of what it was intended to be? You know, when, when that, you have this expression that we've got the, the best legal system money can buy, um, that's not a good thing, right? It shouldn't be like that. Where uh, you end up with, uh, you know, a certain outcome if you've got the money to buy it, and you end up with a different outcome if you don't have the money to buy it. And uh, the inequities of that, that's not justice. That's the antithesis of justice. And so it's called subverts. There's another rendering, I don't mind, with ruin. The, the bribe blinds the clear-sighted and ruins, ruins the cause of the just. How about Proverbs 13.6? Back to Proverbs again. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness, and again, the translation is subverts, wickedness ruins the sinner. So think about it. Think about the effect that this life has. That not only is it You've got on the one hand the standard of righteousness and that's going to please God and that's going to have reward of the judgment seat of Christ. There'll be eternal consequences for that. On the other hand is wickedness and wickedness does not please God and there's going to be uh, wood hand stubble burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. There's going to be eternal consequences. We understand that there's eternal consequences on both sides but this verse is telling us there's also present consequences on both sides that the life of righteousness has a present value of protection. The life of righteousness protects you presently. That's the first half of verse 6 here. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless. There's a benefit there. And you're protected from the consequences of sin because you're not sinning, you're walking in righteousness. You're protected from uh, all of the horrible things that happen if you're not walking in righteousness. Okay? If you're faithful in, uh, 
in uh, in your uh, marriage and your marital relationships. You're not worried about the, the 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 sexual diseases, and you're not worried about other consequences and um, and so forth. But on the other hand, so the righteous walk pays dividends. That's why, uh, like in our family, we we don't have health insurance, but we use the uh, the Christian medical cost sharing. Uh, it's called Samaritan Ministries, and and we bear one another's burdens, and we share those expenses and and things. So um, when they come up, we get the things reimbursed. But guess what? They're not insurance, and they don't cover non biblical activities. So uh, you know, if you try to file a claim for uh, you know something that's the consequences of your sin. Samaritan Ministries are going to say, no, we don't support that. Your brothers and sisters in Christ don't support that. And you signed the covenant when you signed up for Samaritan Ministries that, that, uh, that uh, you're going to live the biblical lifestyle and they spell, spell it right out. This is the biblical lifestyle. And uh, crack cocaine's not on it. <laughs> Alright, for example. And all these other things that they don't cover related to, uh, related to that. But of course the life of wickedness, there's a huge price to pay. Not just at the judgment seat of Christ, not just in eternity. Or for the unbeliever at the great white throne judgment, you start paying that price now, in time. And the consequence, wickedness ruins the sinner. Wickedness, I don't like the word subvert, wickedness ruins the sinner. And uh, and the issue's there. You know, and I've seen it, I've seen uh, I used to do hospital duty when I worked for the sheriff's department. And, uh, you know, when you'd have inmates that were just too sick to be in jail anymore, uh, they took them over to Brackenridge. There was a whole wing there for uh, inmates. And because uh, they're still in custody, even though they're hospitalized. And, and you're just, and you watch them die. And you watch, uh, you know, these heroin addicts and these others, and they're dying. And, uh, and they're, you know, 25, 30 years old. They look like they're 50 or 60. And uh, it's just, it's sad. The consequences that their lifestyle—I call it a death style—is uh, is producing in their in their they're reaping it in their own flesh. All right, so that's ni- that's uh, thirteen six. Of course, nineteen three is our passage today. Uh, Salaf will have another appearance in chapter twenty one in verse twelve. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. So this one is an intensified poem where the A and the B part come together in a a synthesis. And notice the the wicked is not just by himself, it's actually the house of the wicked. We find that there's a a community of wicked and it's it's, uh, the impact is spread to just the one. Remember misery loves company and and, uh, different things. And so as they come together in a house it uh, it all comes to salaf. It all comes to ruin. Chapter twenty two and verse twelve. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but He overthrows the words of the ruined one, the treacherous man, the one that's ruined. So it's a ruined way, and subverted, treacherous, ruined. Different ways that you can render it. They're all horrible. Any description of salaf, however you bring it from Hebrew and English, is nothing we want to be a part of. Because it's ruined, it's subverted, it's uh, treacherous, and uh, the issue there. Alright, so we have perverted, 
deficient knowledge, hurried, ruined, and finally we have raging, a raging heart. And this is interesting to me too because I think we see this on the news every night. I think we see raging in, uh, in all kinds of contexts, political and otherwise. We see a lot of anger and a lot of rage. And the Hebrew verb is za'af. Again, there's a lion in there, so you got the left hooked uh, apostrophe. Z-A apostrophe A-P-H. Za'af. Za'af. I've always been terrible at pronouncing my lion. It's... uh, some people just chicken out and they use a G sound for it, but it's not technically a G sound. It's it's uh, further back in the throat than that. Dave McCoy used to tell me, just try to swallow, cough, and sneeze at the same time and you'll come close. <laughs> I said, well, that's helpful. Okay. Um, I think that's why the Germans love the Hebrew so much, because their language is guttural anyway, and they're constantly growling in their throat and doing stuff, but um, but that's what the lion is. It's a guttural. It's in the back of the throat. It is a throat closure like the olive, but it's a throat closure with a with a kick. And so uh, zakaf. That's a good way to do it. Zakaf. Twenty one ninety six is the Strong's Concordance, and it's only used four times because probably the the Hebrews didn't like speaking it either. Second Chronicles twenty six, where it's used twice in the same verse. All right, and we don't often get to Second Chronicles. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. You get to Ezra and Nehemiah. You've gone too far. Second Chronicles twenty-six. In verse nineteen. And this is the interesting thing about Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king to start, but he had a terrible end, and pride is what did him in. And um, I don't find it coincidental that Chronicles gives us more of the uh, spiritual viewpoint here than, than uh, Kings. So looking at verse 16 here, when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. What was he doing that for? He's got no business doing that. The king, he's a Davidic king. He's the son of David. He's the tribe of Judah. He has no business going into the temple. That's for the Levites. That's for the sons of Aaron. That's for the priesthood. But when you're rich and powerful and arrogant, you feel you can do anything you want to do. And uh, so he's going to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered in after him, and with him, 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed, yes, just because you're a priest doesn't mean you can't be valiant, okay? You could have a pastor with a concealed carry permit, that's not nothing wrong with that. You could have a priest who's valiant, all right? And um, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. This raging heart. 
And, and you can't explain, it's not rational, it's not normal. You know, um, it's, and this is why I say it's in the news and you get these mass shootings, you get some act of rage, and it's, 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 it's not even emotional technically. I mean, we could think of it as emotional, but I think it's, it's, it's deeper than that. I think it comes from the core of the soul, the core of the heart. Not even an emotional thing um, the way that it's described anyway. So he uh, was filled with this rage and with a censer in his hand um, and while he was enraged with the priest the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And so uh, Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold he was leprous on his forehead and they hurried him out of there and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. So King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And guess what? He lived. He didn't die right away. The hand of God's judgment, um, it's, it would be merciful to, uh, to, to kill him that day. And it would be a diminished judgment to kill him on that day. It is a larger judgment to leave him alive in that, the misery of that leprosy. So he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house judging the people of the land. And so just keep these things in mind. There's, there's a lot of studies that we can do out of this, a lot of Old Testament studies that come out of this. For example, chronological studies in the Old Testament uh, because there's confusion. People end up with different timelines because, uh, and you have to consider the co-regencies, the fact that now we've got two kings in place. And how do you date the beginning of Jotham's reign do you count the time that he was reigning or do you only start it after, after Uzziah finally dies? And, uh, and there's a lot of that. It's not the only case where you have co-regencies. And so um, that's why there's some very excellent material out there on Old Testament chronology that factors in all these details. There's also some terrible books out there on, Hebrew, on uh, Old Testament chronology that uh, they don't factor in these details and so they end up, their numbers are widely wrong. And they end up confusing um, the, the, the dates for Solomon, they end up confusing the dates for the Exodus, and, uh, and it just ends up with, with problematic areas. So anyway, this is a good verse to at least read and understand the principle of co-regencies and how it is you can have a, you can have a, a son who begins his reign before the father has actually ended his reign, and uh, those reigns can overlap. And when those reigns overlap, then you can't just strictly add those numbers together in a linear fashion. You have to compress those numbers somewhat based upon the overlap. That uh, means you're double counting in certain years. All right. Anyway, two uses of enraged in Second Chronicles 26 and verse 19. We have, of course, our passage today in uh, Proverbs 19.3. And then we have Jonah. Don't get to Jonah very often. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Jonah. And uh, you probably know what this verse is talking about before you even turn there. What do you think it's talking about? It's the raging sea is what it's talking about. Yeah, they threw him over. And and this, I don't know, I've, I've read commentaries on this. I, I, I tend to agree. I it, is this, uh, is this a suicide attempt on Jonah's part? He's doing everything he can to not, uh, not go to Nineveh. 
including having these guys throw them overboard. Um, in any event, they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its azotdath. The sea stopped its raging. So the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It ends up these Gentiles get to offer sacrifices to Yahweh <laughs> because they just threw his prophet into the, into the sea. Um, and so the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and we know the story. All right. But that raging sea, what a metaphor. I mean, what a picture for us, right? Because this is what Proverbs is talking about. So when you think about the power of a raging sea, when you think about how deadly it is, that's the unstable life of no integrity. That uh, it's hurried, it's ruined, it's raging, it's knowledge deficient. All these, these five descriptions, this is the unstable life of no integrity. Whereas the walk of integrity is just being faithful to the Lord God. Walking, you know, to walk humbly with your Lord. And uh, how simple can that be? Ooh. Okay. (laughs) Well, we can move on to point two without the slides. I forgot to put the slides on there. Um, All right, point two. As was studied in Proverbs 14.20, in this fallen world, friendships can live and die based on money. I'll say it again since you can't see it. Point two, as was studied in Proverbs 14.20, as was studied in Proverbs 14.20, in this fallen world, friendships can live and die based on money. Friendships can live or die based on money. And this is Proverbs 19.4. Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friends. Remember, separation is the fundamental concept in every form of death that, we, that the Bible describes. Separation is a death principle. And so in this case, it is a friendship death. When friends are separated, that's a friendship death, just to use the, the biblical expression. And yet when the money's flowing and things are great, let the good times roll, right? And uh, wealth can add many friends. So you've got friendship life. You've got a social life as long as the money keeps going. But then uh, when the money's gone, you experience the friendship death and uh, the issues there. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll quit looking at that because it's not going to show up just every time I click it. Um. Let's look back to chapter 14 because this is something we taught already. And just because we're t- we've taught it already doesn't mean we can ignore it now. God put it in here repeatedly for a reason. The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. Remember, we're supposed to love our neighbor. Not just the rich ones, <laughs> okay? But the poor neighbor, why is he hated? Well, because of this issue, because of the way the world operates. Shouldn't be that way. If, if you're walking in integrity, if you're, if you're walking with the Lord, you're going to love your neighbor even as you love the Lord. But this is what happens in this fallen world. The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. So yeah, you're going to multiply your friends as, uh, 
19, 4 says you're going to add many friends. And uh, you can keep adding friends. It's, it's almost like Facebook. You can just keep adding friends, keep adding friends, keep adding friends without limit. Well, I'm told there is a limit. Um, a Facebook limit. I haven't reached it yet, but anyway, I'm told there's a limit. But in terms of uh, your social life and how much uh, of these fair weather friends you can accumulate, it depends on how much money you're willing to blow on them, how much money you're willing to keep spending, and uh, how you keep, uh, keep this thing going. Alright, so as was studied in Proverbs 14.20, in this fallen world, friendships can live and die based on money. They can. They don't have to. They don't have to. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and if if, uh, if the two of you are like-minded in the Word of God, your friendship will survive whatever. Your friendship will survive any adversity. It'll, it'll survive all the ups and downs of, of finances and ups and downs of different things. So, uh, under this we're going to have subpoints A, B, C, and D. Subpoint A, the prodigal son illustrates this truth. The prodigal son. You want a, you want a, a whole parable to describe this verse? Jesus gives it to us in uh, Luke 15. The prodigal son illustrates this truth. Luke 15, verses 13 through 15. We can turn there. Because he got his windfall when uh, he talked his dad into giving him his inheritance early. And uh, he took off. And boy, did he have a lot of friends. At least at first, right? At least at first. He gets this huge windfall and you get this as like the lottery winners. You get that sudden wealth syndrome and all of a sudden you, you're a millionaire and you and it just came out of nowhere. And you really don't know how to handle it because you didn't work to produce it. You don't understand the sacrifice that it takes in the de- delayed gratification and in the long-term investing and in the true wealth accumulation. N- none of those values were ever instilled into your thinking because it just fell into your lap. And so without the right kind of thinking to function as a wealthy person, you're still a, a poor person in your thinking. You just have a lot of money to throw around. And this is what happens here. And so the parable actually begins in verse 11. Although technically the two parables in front of this one are telling the same story. <laughs> okay, with a lost sheep or a lost coin or a lost son, Jesus is teaching the same message over and over again. But we'll keep it with the son in the in the story here. So the man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me." So he divided his wealth between them. And he didn't say he was going to cash out and run. <laughs> he just wants to take custody, take possession, take ownership of it. Well, so his father does so, and he takes and he runs. And not many days later the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. Got everything together. You know what that means? He's not packing up the sheep, he's not packing up the goats, he's not, he's cashing out. He's converting everything into something portable. So he can depart with it. And he goes on a journey to a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living squandered. All right? And this is uh, the term that you want to pay attention to because there's nothing wrong with recreation. There's nothing wrong with um, consumer spending. 
But consumer spending is not the only spending we should be engaged in. There's other spending that we engage in that's investments rather than um, consume, consumption. But that, that too requires a thought process. That too requires the wisdom from the Word of God to shape how you approach the blessings He supplied you with. He supplied us with all things richly to enjoy. And so we need to have His capacity to enjoy what He's provided us. And that may include consumption spending and investment spending and other kinds of um, uh, grace donations and support of uh, grace ministries and any number of other uses that we can turn our resources towards. But if it's all about um, the, uh, the entertainment and the fun and games, well then the Bible says you squandered it. It's squandering. Loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country and he began to be impoverished. And so uh, the idea of spending everything is not what God designed it for. Some of it should not be spent. Some of it's supposed to be saved. Some of it's supposed to be held in reserves. You're going to have seven years of skinny cows or seven years of fat cows to get ready for the seven years of skinny cows. Well, you can do that so long as you're not squandering everything during the, the seven fat cow years. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his field to feed swine. So, you know, wh- where are his friends? His friends are gone. There's just this one guy willing to hire him to, to feed the pigs. So it's really the illustration related to the friendships that can live and die. You can have all kinds of friends. When it says squandered his estate with loose living, you know, the older brother kind of alludes to some of these things too later on when the older son starts to grumble. He uh, says down in uh, verse 30, this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You have, fat, you have killed the fatted calf for him. And I don't know how the older son knows any of that. There's no prostitutes mentioned in the earlier verses that we went through. It just says squandered with loose living. But apparently the older brother had some contacts and had some uh, spies keeping tabs on uh, uh, they didn't have social media so it was tougher back then. You had to, <laughs> you had to have people you actually hired to, to report back. And uh, He had all kinds of friends while the money was still flowing. And when it gave out, where's the friends? You know, when the famine hit and he's hungry, where's the friends? He didn't have a single friend to feed him. The friends are gone when the money's gone. So now he's taken uh, the the least desirable thing imaginable, but what are you going to do? You got to eat. And you're not getting paid very much either. They're eating better, the pigs are eating better than you are. Because he, uh, it said he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. So however much money he was making and whatever that could, that could buy for him to eat was less uh, appetizing than the, uh, what, the, what the swine were eating. And imagine that, when, when you're surrounded by food all day at work, <laughs> you know, you're surrounded by bacon and ham and pork chops and, and you're <laughs> and you're starving. What a what a sad example. All right. And so uh we have the illustration of this truth. So point B, 
Abandonment by friends and family during difficult times is among the most difficult of human tests. Abandonment by friends and family during difficult times is among the most difficult of human tests. And this happened in the life of Job. Job 19, verses 13 through 17. Abandonment by friends and family. It happened to David. His brothers hated him. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Joseph. They threw him down a well. Then they shipped him off to Egypt as a slave. Abandonment by friends and family. I think this story gets told over and over again in different contexts because it's very common in, uh, in every generation of the human experience. Abandonment by friends and family during difficult times is among the most difficult of human tests. Job 19, verses 13 through 17. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Job 19. I usually just aim for Psalms because it's the biggest book anyway. Aim for Psalms and then back up till you get to Job. Alright, Job responded, how long will you torment me? That's how the chapter begins. Get down to verse and he blames God for a lot of these things. And uh, he is so deep into his carnality at this point as the fault finder. He gets rebuked for it at the end of the book as the fault finder. Remember, it's only in the early chapters that he doesn't sin with his lips. When you get past that statement, there's plenty of of, uh, verbal sins and mental attitude sins in the book of Job. That's why he has to repent at the end of the book. And so he's blaming God for all his problems. Verse 6, he says, God has wronged me. The righteous God has been unrighteous in my case. God has wronged me. He has closed his net around me. And then all the verses that follow from 7 through 12 is a description of all the things that God has done. And nobody's helping him. I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He, that's God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. God has put darkness on my path. God has stripped my honor from me. God has removed the crown from my head. He's just blaming God in every one of these verses. You get down to uh, verse 13. He has removed my brothers far from me and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. Isn't that horrible? I mean, he's been paying the bills all these years and feeding them and, and they, they act like, who are you? I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife and I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. <laughs> you know, that's bad. Children are usually trusting and fun and, and whatever, and you can, you can make googly faces with them and, you know, little Rebecca or any of the kids. And, uh, you know, they'll come running up to you and they want to show you what they learned in Sunday school or they want to... Uh, anyway, I have fun with the kids here on Sunday mornings. And, uh, but in Job's case, you know, even the young children despise him. And you wonder, how disfigured did he become? 
with the boils from head to foot and how how uh you know marred was his was his face and how you know for the children to recoil i rise up and they speak against me all my associates abhor me and those i love have turned against me that's why you have to make sure you've got agape love because that's unconditional and it doesn't depend upon it being returned or not My bone clings to my skin and my flesh. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. You wonder where that phrase comes from? Here, There it is. It's a biblical expression. Pity me, pity me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? You just want to add to what God's doing. Aren't you satisfied? Okay, so this is among the most difficult of the human tests to face this abandonment. Jesus faced it, you know, and his disciples fled. He gets arrested and goes on trial and he hangs on the cross and where are the disciples? Near as we can tell, John was the only one that stood nearby with uh, Jesus' mother. Peter, because he, he, he it's not a direct statement, but he intimates in uh, in First Peter that he saw the crucifixion, so he must have been at such a distance to watch it from afar that uh, none of the gospel records detail that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, none of them make reference to Peter being anywhere near the cross. But there is a, some allusion in, in, I think it's in First Peter, at uh, seeing the crucifixion that, okay, we'll just go with that. And if he did see it, it wasn't nearby. So where were the rest of the disciples? Right? Gone. He was had a thief on the left and a thief on the right and those were the closest ones to him. Luckily one of them got saved, right? I mean you could <laughs> there's a blessing. Alright, so we have abandonment by friends and family. What else do we have? Um, we'll talk about this next week because let's look at this again. Proverbs 19 Verse 4, wealth adds many friends. Wealth adds many friends. And, and ask yourself, okay, that's a bad thing, I think. Can it be a good thing? Is it a good thing? Is it ever a good thing? You know, it, it's going to be a bad thing when the fair weather friends are just, you know, using you for your money and whatever, but can it also be a good thing if it's not a fair weather friend? Can it also be a good thing? Is there a proper way to use money to make friends? Well, in Luke 16, Jesus says, make friends by means of the wealth of mammon. And that's a verse that has puzzled Christians for 2,000 years. (laughs) All right? Because it comes at the end of that parable of the unrighteous steward. And the master praises that unrighteous steward at the end of the... and almost anyone I know reads that passage and says, no, don't praise him. But the master does. And not only does the master praise him, but then Jesus tells his disciples, I say to you, make friends by the wealth of mammon. And that's not the parable, that's Jesus talking to his disciples. So that when it fails, they will welcome you into the eternal dwellings. Anyway, we're going to I can't spring it on you in two minutes remaining here this morning. So uh, just, you got you got seven days to think about it, and then next week we'll uh, we'll look at it. And if you were with us way back in the Life of Christ series, 
Uh, you've had this teaching already in, uh, in Luke, uh, but you've probably slept since then and maybe you don't remember it. So we'll, uh, we'll refresh our memories as we look at, uh, look at this next week. Father, I thank you for your truth and I thank you for uh, faithful brothers and sisters that are hungry to be fed, hungry to learn, hungry to grow, hungry to know more. And they want to know more, Father, and with that knowledge have the wisdom to apply it and the discernment and the grace, Father, to be transformed by what you're teaching us. So, Father, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.